We're glad you're here. Whether you're joining us online, you're in the room. We're excited to be kicking off a brand new series tonight called What's the wise thing to do. What is the wise thing to do? And I think that if we could all agree that we do want to um, have wisdom in our lives, that's something that I think we would look at each other and say, I would like to be wise. I would like to be considered wise among my friend group and I would like to live a life of uh, wisdom. I think we can agree on that. And I think in order to understand how we have wisdom in our lives, we have to know what is the starting point of that. And I think what we're gonna talk about tonight is literally the most important question you could ask yourself not only in young adulthood, but for the rest of your life. This is literally the starting point, the most important question on your road to wisdom. And that is what does God's word have to say about it? What does God's word have to say in every season, in every circumstance, in every situation, in any problem, in any dilemma that you are facing? What does God's word have to say about it? That is the starting point of wisdom. That is where it all begins. And you think, okay, how can we make a statement like that? Why do we believe in that? Why would we start off a service and say, hey, what's the wise thing to do? What God's word says. I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, verse 24. He says, everyone, who, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a, li- like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Do you know what a rock is? It is steady, it is stable, it is a firm foundation. God's word is not only that, it is those things, but also, what does it tell us in 2 Timothy 3.16? It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for for correction, and for training in righteousness. That not only is God's word a firm foundation for your life, but it also is something that can instruct you, that can guide you, that can teach you. You know, uh, and I love Hebrews 4.12. It talks about how the word of God is living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of both soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and actually has the ability to discern the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. We live in an age of spirituality where people are searching for different things and how they can grow spiritually. And the source of that all right? It's not found in anything else other than the word of God because it's living and it's active. That when you pick up your Bible or you're reading your Bible in 2022, it is still living and active and speaks to you today. We know this from what Jesus said, that it's a firm foundation that we can build our lives on, that it has value in teaching us and correcting us in our lives and that it is living and that it is active. That is why we can boldly stand with confidence and say that what is the wise thing to do? The wise thing to do is what God's word says. That is the wise thing to do. I wanna pivot for just a second and I wanna ask you why you think the way that you do. You thought about that question before? Why do you think the way that you do? Why do you have the thoughts that you have, the pattern of thinking that you have? And I'll use this kind of as an illustration. Um, I am a father of uh, two children, uh, hashtag dad mode, all right? I'm, I'm living it right now. And one of my favorite things, I actually just got my first mow in of the season last weekend, okay? I inherited a riding lawnmower. I'll mow every five days sometimes just for the heck of it. My yard doesn't really need to be mowed. But I love to mow the grass. I got my Crocs on in sports mode, 
camo Crocs. Uh, if you're driving down Seeger, I just told everyone where I live, you see me out there every once in a while. So um, I love mowing, and here's why I love it. When I first moved in, I had to really evaluate my yard and see, okay, here's a stump there. Maybe there's some rocks here. I can mow it this length, and like this is appropriate. I had to think about it a little bit. But now, entering into year three to four of living in my home, I don't have to think about it. I'm on autopilot mode when I'm out there. So I can have a podcast in, I can listen to music, I can just sit there and, and ride on my mower, and I don't have to worry about it, I don't have to think about it, because my brain has kind of gone to autopilot mode in that situation. Now, that's fine while I'm mowing, but what it's not fine for is in all the different stages and all the different things that are happening in life, if I'm just autopilot mode with my thoughts. And I think it's very easy for us, and I know this to be true for us, is oftentimes we just think in a way, and if we really evaluated it, maybe we're not even sure why we think the way that we do. And this is important, because there are things that are influencing the way that you think. You know that. We know that. If you got here, uh, you got this little sheet as you came in tonight, um, and, and on there, there's some things listed. I would call these really areas that influence our thinking. We see that our past experiences, your family upbringing, the way you were raised impacted you. The experiences you had growing up impact your thinking. Your current circumstances, some of y'all are in a job you hate, some of you are at a school uh, and you're going through a program, whatever it may be, your current circumstances influence the way that you think. We think about it, media and entertainment, social media especially, it impacts the way that we think. We know this. You could look at any amount of research and see that that impacts our thinking. Our friend groups, who you hang around with, you know, um, you just think about it like your friend group drastically influences your life. And next week we're going to be talking about who to surround yourself, like who are the wise people that you need to listen to. Show me your friends and I'll show you your life. We know that saying and it usually rings to be true. That our education, the education that we experience or that we're undergoing has the ability to influence us. And we look at like things in the realm of politics that they have a way of influencing our thinking. All these different areas plus more, right? plus more impact our thinking. But what we always have to be cautious of, this is the most important thing I think we can get as we look at God's word in young adulthood, in the rest of our lives, is that God's word, the Bible, scripture, is what we use to interpret the world around us. We say it like this all the time in our starting point class here at High Street, um, and we say that God's word is the lens in which we view the world. We do not take all these different areas of influence and allow them to impact the way we view the Bible. We actually do the opposite of that. We take the Bible and we allow it to interpret, to direct our thinking towards all of these different areas in our life. It is the lens in which we view the world through. That's what it's there for, and that's what it exists for. And I think that sometimes this could seem as a limiting thing, but actually what I found in being in community with other people who view this the same is this is actually such freedom in this, that when we begin to use God's word to shape our lives, again, we're on a firm foundation. We're not having to wonder, what do we believe in? What do we think about this? That we can actually go to the Bible. We can see what God's word says about every situation, every season, every circumstance, every problem, every dilemma we're facing, and actually we can use his truth as a lens to interpret what is going on around us. 
if we have to always be cautious that we're not taking in just these stray thoughts, these things that are just developing in us, right, in this autopilot mode thinking and we're applying it to how we read the Bible. We actually use God's word to shape how we think about things. And so tonight's message is a little different than what we normally do here. And, and if you're here a lot or you, you're watching us a lot, you know a lot of times we just take a passage, we'll look at it, and we'll look at, hey, what is God's character in this? How, what do we learn about God? And then how do we apply that to our lives today? But I want to like dive into a lot of different scripture tonight. I kind of want to look at four case studies, and you can see it on the sheet that you got, uh, four different case studies, and really look at, okay, how do we practically go about applying the truth of God's word to our lives? And so we're gonna do that tonight, and we're gonna march through these things. And I look at case study number one, and, and it's listed there, you can see it, is gossip. Gossip is a funny thing. I mean, it's really not funny, but it is a funny thing how um, Talking bad about people has this weird way of you can bond with other people over that. And I think sometimes, this is what, I think sometimes like we view this as like this is something that typically ladies struggle with, but I can tell you that men struggle with this just as much, if not more. And have you ever been in a situation where, um, you know, for me, sometimes maybe I'm in a new circle, right? And I want to like bond with the people. I want, I want to be cool. I want to be liked. I want to be respected. And they start talking about somebody or they start making fun of someone and you find it easy to join in on because it kind of bonds you, right? And then you're kind of part of the group. Yeah, can you believe he does that all the time? That's ridiculous. Can you believe she, she wore that? Like you even believe that she's hanging out with them? And like you're, you're talking about people and you're, you're, you're venting, right? And you're sharing things that irritate you. And now there's a healthy place to have communication about things that are frustrating in your life, but very rarely, like those are, those are small circles, like those are small group of people. We have to be cautious about the words we say. What does God's word have to say about it? Where this is so much a part of our culture. In Ephesians 4, 29, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Man, even today, I've fallen short of that standard in God's word. And it feels so harmless to, I was just venting, I was just gossiping, I was just sharing that. But man, like how evil is that? That we can actually use our words to tear people down? And I know that I've said things before that impact people in a negative way, Y'all have had things said to you and it impacts you in a great way. What would God's word have to say about it next time you're in that situation and say, hey, build people up, don't tear them down. Let's look at another scenario. That, one, that one's kind of quick, right? That's easy, we can get on board with that. Let's look at the, thinking about like lustful thoughts. You know, we, we are in a society where if you're on campus and, and you're a guy and you see a girl uh, and, and you're, you're just like checking her out and it's fine, that's normal. Actually, it'd be weird if you didn't do that. That's kind of what our society preaches, right? Or if you're a girl, you can have that same reaction. You see a guy and all you can think of them is in a sexual way. Like, that's just normal. Let's take it a step further. The images that you see on your phone in your Instagram Explore page or the images that you're viewing online. Man, I remember as a, as a high school coach, I had a, a guy that I was talking to and he just couldn't believe that I, I was telling people not to look at pornography. Like, that was blowing his mind. I'm like, hey, you have no idea the destructive power. You have no idea the destructive power of that. The path that you go down in that can take you further than you ever wanna go. 
And we live in a society that baits us to the edge sexually and then chastises people when they cross the line as if we're surprised that it happened. But we shouldn't be surprised. What does God's word say about general lust? What does it say? And, and I, I look and, and I think of you know, Matthew 5, 27. It says, you have heard uh, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This is Jesus speaking. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus raises the standard and says not, hey, like when you have those thoughts and when you look at that, you're already committing adultery with someone in your heart. And I think sometimes it manifests itself in like we so badly want a relationship that we're just lusting after that. We so badly want to feel uh, fulfilled and not lonely that we're lusting after just the thought that we crave that physical affection because we have not put our hope in something greater. And society sells us that that's gonna, it's gonna make us satisfied. I'll encourage you if, you, if you wanna hear more about that, we have an open mic episode, a podcast we do bi-weekly here at High Street. We talked about sex on that podcast. We had a message that Jared gave earlier this semester in our DM series. Like I can't dive into all of that tonight, but where the world tells us this isn't a big deal, God kind of raises the standard for us. He says, hey, I know this is what you're being taught and this is what people are thinking but this is what my word says. Let's take another form of our society and just look at general selfishness. I was listening to, I already said dad mode, right? But I love sports talk radio, okay? And one of the shows I listened to, I heard one of the co-hosts on there and she said this. She said, as she was talking and they're debating, she says, humility is for God. She says, I'll be humble to God, but I'm not being humble to anybody else. Those were her words. She said that on a publicly syndicated radio program that went out to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, she believes that, that humility is something, she can demonstrate that to God, but there's no way she's gonna demonstrate that to anybody else. What does God's word say? In Philippians 2, 3, and 4, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think of that song, it's like, it's me, myself, and I, right? I'm gonna get mine, I'm gonna do me, I'm gonna put me first, I need to keep putting me first. And it's like, man, when the world is telling us that, we're missing the mark. What Jesus says is that, and what God's word says is that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. He set the example, he set the standard. And if you're looking in here tonight and your life is so miserable and maybe you're just frustrated with where you're at, I would ask you, are you serving anybody else? You want a good marriage down the road? You gotta learn to serve, you gotta learn to be humble. You wanna have good relationships with your, with your kids? Like get used to it, you're gonna have to serve them. There ain't nothing fun about waking up in the middle of the night and changing a diaper, I'm just telling you, okay? You're gonna have to serve in that capacity. Humility is something that actually is a benefit to our life. See, it seems like we're losing something, we're giving something away, but we're getting, what we're getting back is far greater in return. And Jesus set this standard for us. 
We think about selfishness. So we look at these, these kind of case studies. We're starting to see that as we take God's word, suddenly situations get simpler. They get easier, that we have clear direction in our lives. And I think what so many people are hungry for is clear direction, a clear vision of how am I supposed to live my life, a guide map, a resource. And God's word is that. It's his communication with us. Now, let's paint another uh, scenario here, if you will. Maybe you find yourself in a situation, maybe people in this room have found themselves in this situation where you've, uh, there, there's an unplanned pregnancy. That's a pretty common one. From seven years in education, I can tell you that, that that's a story of many people. We know stories about that. We know people, we've experienced it. Some of you might be in that situation yourself. You're in an unplanned pregnancy. What do we do? A guy and a girl, maybe it's just casual, right? Maybe, maybe it just happened, it wasn't even really dating, it was just kind of a thing that was happening. Well, the first thing that we look at is that there's been a deviation from God's design for sex that he created it as a good gift within the context of marriage. Now, I think of Genesis um, 2.24, so, so early on in scripture, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Mark 10, verses six through nine, Jesus affirms this very thing. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That something like, Something happens when you enter into this sexual relationship that it was designed for the marriage that the two would become one flesh. There's no shame, right? There's no worry, there's no fear. That's like the healthy version of it. And perhaps in this situation, you've already bypassed that, right? What do you do? What do you do? What does God's word have to say about that? Here's the problem in our society, oftentimes is that men have not stepped up and, f and fulfilled their God-given responsibility in a situation like this to father their children. That's like the starting point. Man, it starts with, with the male to lead. It starts with the male to take ownership of what has happened I think of 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We have a responsibility, not only to care for those outside of our immediate family, but within our household. That's where, child, that's where children are supposed to take place, is within the household setting. And maybe in this situation, you've deviated from that, but it's not too late for you to take responsibility for that. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. A man cannot do that if he's not present. And depending on where you would look at statistics, it would say that, that children are growing up in homes, one out of every four, one out of every three is growing up in a home without a father. And we look at so many issues of our society and we have ideas of what will fix it and ideas of what will help, but so much of what would help if it would, men would step up and fulfill the God-given responsibility to lead their family and to shepherd their children. 
I can say that with confidence. Seven years in public education, what so many kids need is they need a father at home to shepherd them, to guide them, and to love them. And that's the starting point of this, of this scenario, right? And an unplanned pregnancy, this is the starting point right there. It starts with men stepping up and doing what God has called them to do. What else would God have to say in a situation like this? As a baby is growing inside of a mother, Psalms 139 verses 13 through 16 has this to say. Psalms 139 is one of the most popular psalms. And I love this passage because it paints a beautiful picture of what's happening. That even in a scenario like this, that was, right, there was a deviation maybe from God's plan if it was outside of marriage. But there's still great hope. And there's still a blessing in that. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And that's beautiful. An explanation of what's happening as as a mother is growing a child inside of her. Psalms 127.3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Clearly we see from the details given that they're fearfully and wonderfully made, intricately woven, a reward from God himself, that there's something happening here in in the midst of this situation, right? That is amazing. That is in that God has his hand in. But again, we've kind of painted a picture of how oftentimes our, our culture and our society deviates from God's plan. That in the United States, every single day, there are 2,363 babies who are either vacuumed out of their mother's womb, who are uh, poisoned with a lethal injection, who are dismembered and removed or who starved to death due to an abortion pill being taken 2,363 times a day in the United States. That every 97 seconds, Planned Parenthood performs an abortion in the United States. That since 1973, there's been over 60 million babies aborted in the United States of America. And we look at what God's word says. Clearly he views that something is happening here in this situation that is good. Even maybe it's a dire circumstance and it's not good. And oftentimes women have been left abandoned in this situation, but there is great hope because something good is happening. Something amazing, something from God. There's great hope in this situation. So I would say to anybody who's, who's in a situation where maybe you're giving counsel to someone or maybe uh, you're, you're, you're experiencing that later on and you, you're maybe pressured to do that, maybe a guy's pressuring you that this might be an option for you, please don't do it. God is the author of life. And Genesis 127 says that all, everyone is formed in the image of God. And that's true for every single unborn baby in the world. They're formed in the image of God. And what I would say, I look at uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, 
And I'll speak this over to anybody in this situation. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. I believe that would be true for any woman, any man that finds himself in this situation, that if you will commit and you will turn your life to God and you will pursue him, he will provide for you as you provide for that child. Because this is a promise from God. It's not just like, hey, I might do it. He says that he will. He says that he will. I know in a room this size that maybe there's somebody in here and you're thinking like, I don't belong here. What, uh, you're, you're talking about this and um, you, maybe, maybe your reaction is uh, you just shame. You've been involved in a situation like this and you're carrying around a weight from it. What does 1 John 1, 9 says? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you would just go to Jesus, even though that feels so heavy, right? The situation that's going on. Maybe you've underwent that. He'd forgive you. If you would just go to Jesus, it's he who can make you whole again. It's he who can give you hope again. It's he who can wash away your sins. It's he who can forgive you. It's he who can release you from that debt, from that weight that you feel. And that there's healing. And that there's grace where there's the truth of God's word. There's also the grace that he freely gives as a gift that no sin is too far to separate you from the love of God. That's what I think we would say to anyone in that situation they find themselves in that's committed that, that's been there, that's done that. But you know, as believers, we have a responsibility in this situation as well. James 1.27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That as Christians, we should be the hope in this situation. That's why I love going to church at a place like High Street where there's an adoption fund set in place that we give, to, that you can give to that adoption fund and that we actually give it to people who are adopted adopting children, that as Christians, we should be providing resources and care for mothers who find themselves in this situation, who fathers and mothers who find themselves in these situations, that there's a responsibility for us to care and to provide and to love and to support. You know, elsewhere in the Psalms, it says that God is the father to the fatherless. Man, like, maybe an earthly father has abandoned you, but God is the father to the fatherless. And as we begin to look at these situations, whether it's gossip, lust, you name it, name any situation that exists, as we begin to look through the lens of God's word, we have direction and we have guidance. Now these are just examples that many young adults find themselves in, many people find themselves in. But I wanna paint a picture here of a story um, of a man named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was, um, was one of the youngest members ever elected to parliament in England. At 21 years of age, he actually took and was placed in a political position of power. And he was a, from a wealthy family, like he had a privileged upbringing where he was this like on this fast track. He's this celebrity status politician in the, late, the back half of the 1700s in England. 
And William Wilberforce is just an incredible story because what was going on at the time in the world was that there was slavery and the slave trade was just commonplace. Actually, it was a humongous industry that actually existed. It would be the equivalent, the slave trade would have been the equivalent of the modern day like transportation structure within our society. It would be the equivalent of the modern day information technology, IT like, that, that, like it, it's that big, right? It was an industry that was existing. People were profiting. They were making money. There were resources being exchanged. There was people's way of life all wrapped around something so evil as enslaving people. And William Wilberforce is a young adult at 21 years of age in parliament. He, he's a rising star, right? He's charismatic. He, he's kind of this rising, just budding like politician, great future ahead of him. But he was only concerned about himself, he said. His own personal achievement, his own gain, his own success. That was what he was focused on. And so at 21, that was his goal, was himself. Pumping himself up, right? When we talk about selfishness. But at 25 years old, as a young adult, right, just like us, he went on a trip to Europe with one of his former educators, a teacher, who was a believer in Jesus. And as William Wilberforce watched, he began to doubt his unbelief towards God. He began to doubt his unbelief towards God. God started working on his heart at 25 years of age. William Wilberforce started not looking at his political position as just, what can I do for me? But actually, how can I use this position? How has God placed me here in order to make a difference in the world? And Wilberforce, he, he started thinking about it. And the Quakers at this time were a movement to abolish, the Quakers were a people group looking to abolish the slave trade. But they needed a voice in parliament. And Wilberforce, because he started applying God's word to his life, decides to take up this cause. I mean, imagine that. And we think of it, it's like, that was probably easy. Like, good for him. That's awesome. He actually had to have an armed bodyguard escort him around because of the pressure and the threats that he faced. That he faced threats on his life. I mean, he's standing up to one of the largest industries that exists in the slave trade, that he's fighting for the abolition of slave trade in England. That's what Wilberforce was fighting for. He's debating back and forth, should I do this? How do I do this? How do I go about this? And he decides to give a speech to parliament. And for three hours, he lays out the evils and the atrocities that are the slave trade in the world at that time for three hours. He takes a stand because of God's word, because he's viewing the world through the lens of the Bible. He's able to stand firm. And as he presents, this is what he says to the members of parliament as he closes his three hour presentation. He says, having heard all of this, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. William Wilberforce, this wasn't easy for him that he actually had panics and breakdown. Like he, he had a nervous breakdown nearly from the stress and the pressure of what was happening. And this was not an overnight thing that took place. That year after year, he was fighting for this. He was actually friends with John Newton, who if you know who John Newton is, he's actually the author of the song, Amazing Grace. And John Newton, 
told him the truth of God's word. He says, hey, Daniel was this public figure in God's word, Old Testament. Daniel was a public figure just like you, fighting for what was right. He told Wilberforce, don't back down. Keep pressing through and God will provide for you. And so he continued. He was also friends with John Wesley. If you know John Wesley, he was actually the founder and the leader of the Methodist movement, the Methodist church. He's the founder of that, a man of faith. And this is what in a letter he wrote to William Wilberforce. He says, unless divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. Tell even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. For 20 years, this argument entered before Parliament, and William Wilberforce was the voice behind it. It took 20 years, and on the 20th year, right, 20 years later, he sees that as this, this abolition of the slave trade was once again presented, that now the arguments were actually largely in favor of ending the slave trade as he breaks down in tears. He committed his life to doing that, to doing what God's word said. He continued to fight. Slavery was still legal in England at this time. Another 20 years go by and Wilberforce has retired from parliament at this point. But once the abolition of even owning a slave happened in England, two days later, Wilberforce passed away. But I just sit there and think, man, how blessed was he to have done what God's word would have wanted him to do. That he knew Genesis 127 and he saw people regardless of their race, that they were fearfully and wonderfully made that they were made in the image of God and that he fought for people and he stood for something. He stood in truth, in God's word. He had people around him like John Wesley and John Newton who told him the truth of God's word, highlighting the importance of community. And all of that to say this is that when you take God's word seriously, when you view it as the lens of which to view the world and how to shape all those different influential thoughts, you can change the world. You never know as your obedience how God might use you to change and impact the world for good. To me, Wilberforce is one of the great, that's one of the most evil things that has ever happened in all of society. And he was a part of destroying something that was so against God's plan. And it was only because he truly believed God's word and he fought for it. So as we sit there and ask ourselves, what's the wise thing to do? The wise thing to do in every season, in every circumstance, in every situation, in every problem, in every dilemma, in every social injustice is to do what God's word says. That's where wisdom comes from. I just think it's crazy that in young adulthood, right, he decided to turn his life over to Jesus, a man who had no reason to. But I think he knew these these truths of scripture Romans 3.23 tells us that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Me, 
you, the person who gossiped, the person who's selfish, the person who uh, you, you know is lusting. All of us have followed short of the glory of God. But Romans 10, nine tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That there was a man in Jesus, fully God, fully man, came to this earth, lived a perfect life, was crucified on a cross, buried in a tomb, and what we're about to celebrate on Sunday, three days later he rose, overcoming death and the grave in an act of victory over sin. And then all we have to do to have that relationship is to admit our sin, to believe that Jesus is who he says he was, and to confess him as Lord of our life. To be Lord means to give over authority. It's meaning, hey, I'm gonna let God's word guide me instead of just guiding myself. It's such a freeing thing when we submit to God's word. I don't know if you've ever done that before. There's such hope in it. There's such a joy on the other side of that, that God's word actually has this ability as we read to challenge our own thinking. I love in my quiet time when I'm reading and I read something and it just kind of challenges me. I'm like, God, are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? And I begin to see as I reorient my heart and allow the Holy Spirit to work in my life, how much better it is when I submit to God's word. Man, it's good. That's the start of wisdom. I wanna ask you guys to bow your head